Good morning, everyone. Happy belated Thanksgiving to you. Um, we've had our turkey, we've had our pie. By now, a lot of us have had leftovers even. And you know what all that means? It means that it is now officially Christmas season. Oh, I get some shouts. Okay, okay. Now, how fitting is it in the providence of God as we begin this Christmas season that as we turn in our sermon series on doctrine, we should begin an examination of the greatest gift that was ever given, the greatest gift that ever could be given, the gift of the Son. So if your Bibles are open, we're going to be in the book of Romans today, the very first chapter, the very first line of Romans, first six verses of Romans, where Paul says this. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for this family that I love, God, that you loved so much that you gave your only son. God, help us to make him known better today. Help us to glorify him today by the power of this word, by the power of your spirit. And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. I was um, in a hotel lobby just the other night, halfway doing some work, halfway watching a basketball game on TV, so really not accomplishing either. And that was until a commercial came on that caught my attention. Really striking imagery, black and white photography. There was a narration that was going on in the background. And the more I listened to it, the more the story became eerily familiar to me. And sure enough, my suspicion was correct. At the end of the commercial, the words, Jesus was a refugee, came up. He gets us. Have you seen that commercial? Yeah. Uh, apparently, the people that made that commercial actually made two commercials that they put on the Super Bowl, a Jesus commercial on the Super Bowl. I was fascinated by that, and it's caused a lot of outrage on both sides. I mean, my, my discernment spider sense starts tingling. Maybe this happens to you, too. When people start talking about Jesus, we see Jesus on TV, and I'm instantly curious and concerned at the same time saying to myself, hmm, what are they going to say about him? I quickly hopped on their website and I started scouring through all their information basically to find out if I could easily discredit them or not. And um, I'm going to withhold final judgment on all of that for now. I mean, I'm, 
I'm not totally in love with uh, some of the theology and assumptions made by the campaign. I mean, they seem a tad more social agenda than gospel-focused, but I will say that I really admire their approach to making him known. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, some of these commercials, they're, they're really, really well done. It struck me, though, as I, as I thought about it more, as a follower of Christ, I was so on edge about what will they say about him? And yet, that's the very question that was on the minds of all the non-believers that were watching that commercial, too. They were thinking to themselves, what will they say about him? We all, non-believers and believers alike, want to believe that we know the real Jesus, don't we? We all seem to want to have that settled in our minds, or should I say settled in our hearts. What did he stand for? What did he stand against? What would he think about me? Here's perhaps the bigger question, maybe the question I wonder if you've considered. Why is this man's opinion and the world's opinion about this man so important to us? I mean, I can ask people on the street who the President of the United States was 20 years ago, and you know like I do, I'm not going to get a consistent answer. But I can ask people on the street what their opinion about Jesus of Nazareth is, and you know like I do, they're going to have something to say. What is it about someone who walked the earth 2,000 years ago that made him so memorable? Love him or hate him, the tested truth of two millennia shows us that he's not going away, folks. Which means, love him or hate him, sooner or later, each one of us will be faced with answering the question that I called one of the most pivotal questions in all of human history. The question that, like him, is not going away. The question that, like a laser-guided missile, is heading straight for every human heart. Who do you say that I am? Who is the Son? That question is not just simply a, a fill in the blank, guys. The world is on edge to know who Jesus is. And our hearts are on fire to know who Jesus is because who the Son is has ramifications that are the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going away. So maybe to get a good handle on who we will say that he is, we shouldn't base our understanding on what the culture says about him, what our parents say about him, what teachers in our secular classrooms and lecture halls say about him, what our friends say about him, what secular historians and reporters say about him, what social media says about him, what a Super Bowl commercial says about him. Jesus is the living word. So why don't we let him speak for himself? I mean, it's a radical idea, I know, but why don't we see what the written word, the Bible, has to say about him and go from there? Who is the son? Who does scripture say that he is? And why is knowing Jesus so important to our world today? There are clearly plenty in this world that are interested in him, interested in what we, Mercy Church, 
will say about him. Plenty that are waiting on edge, asking themselves, hmm, what are they going to say about him? The volume's turned all the way up. The stakes are high. The pressure's on, my friends. So let's proclaim who Jesus is truthfully. Let's proclaim who Jesus is faithfully. And to do that, we're going to need to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. I may not even have to tell you that to make that claim causes some to be totally outraged. Which is interesting because when I was growing up and I heard that Jesus was God's son, I was totally indifferent. You know, it just meant that Jesus as God's son was like Jesus being God's special guy. Maybe Jesus is, the, you know, God's chief special guy in the, in the Bible and nothing more really. Maybe some of you have that viewpoint or you know someone that has that mindset too. Jesus is just a guy, even God's special guy. He's God's son. It was the power of the gospel that opened my eyes to seeing that saying Jesus is God's son isn't claiming he's just God's special guy and nothing more. Saying that he's the son of God is in fact claiming that Jesus is God. That's because a son in the Hebrew mindset is the one who bore the essence and the image of the Father. Hebrews 1 spells it out in beautiful language about Jesus. It says that he was the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, right? Essence and image. Said so well. And he is the same essence as the Father, the same being as the Father. So to call Jesus the Son of God is to call Jesus God. Not God in part, not God 99% of the way. He's completely God. It's the gospel. Now, that's really good news. It'll bring tears to your eyes to consider just what the God of this universe has really personally himself done to rescue us. Jesus, the Son of God, is how God reconciles the world to himself. He accomplishes it himself. He's the one who relinquished divine privilege and position to take on flesh and without relinquishing his deity. But for many who envision God or would like God to be, well, different, that's going to be maybe the worst news possible. I mean, consider what's at stake. If Jesus is God, then I owe him everything, my very existence, don't I? It means he doesn't just set the rules, he sets the standard. And I, as his creation, should operate the way he sees fit, not the way I see fit. You know anyone in our society that might have a hard time with that reality? Anyone in your workplace, in your circle of friends, in your family, in your seat that might have a reality problem with Jesus being God? Sure. Yeah, we're all gonna struggle with that reality to some degree, guys. Sin in our flesh has made sure of it. But the question is, 
What will you do in response? Here's what some people choose to do. They'll simply say that he's not God. They'll say Jesus never claimed to be God. They'll say his disciples never said he was God. The idea of Jesus as God, it just simply grew generation after generation into a myth, into a legend. A legend? In our text today, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Any self-respecting historian will agree to the crucifixion happening somewhere between the years 30 and 33 AD. And Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, to Roman Christians who he'd never even met, hadn't even visited yet somewhere in the mid-50s. That's well-established. That's 20-something years after Jesus walked the earth. That's not even half a generation. And yet, he references Jesus as the Son of God and his resurrection to these people as though it's common knowledge. You notice that? This is the opening line to his letter. I love that Paul says Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power. That's referencing Christ's divinity according to the spirit of holiness. That means testified as so by the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. He ties the Son's divinity to an event, declares it to be the case. The resurrection is the sign of Christ's divinity. And that word declare, orizo, means to appoint, to divide, separate from. It's where we get the word horizon. You think of the horizon, you have the sky, you have the earth. It's the line that separates the two. It's also the line that connects the two, right? That's what he's claiming in the resurrection. That single event sets Jesus apart as God, separate from sinful mankind, and yet, that fixed point connects God to mankind, all while proving his claim as God is true. It's powerful. Now imagine just reaching back in time to our old buddy Paul as he's sitting down to write this letter to the Romans and telling him, oh, you know, Paul, that whole uh, Jesus is God thing, turns out that's just a legend, man. That just grew over time. What do you think he would respond to that. He'd be like, a oh, legend? Uh, I met the risen Jesus. He's God. Put it in perspective with something today. Just a few days ago, for people who love history, you'll recall that on the 22nd of November, it was the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Huge event in American history. Now, what if I were to call up my parents right now, who happen to have been alive when that happened? 60 years ago, that's more than twice as much time as we're talking about Paul's letter and Jesus walking the earth. What if I called them up and said, you know what guys, the, um, the whole JFK assassination thing, yeah, it turns out that that's just a myth. It didn't really happen. It's just a legend that grew over time. After they finished laughing at me, I'm not kidding, my dad would say something like, what are you smoking, son? 
<laughs> Which is fun. I've never smoked anything. I don't know. He says that a lot. What are you smoking, son? What he'd mean by that is you are being totally ridiculous. It happened. I remember it happening. I remember who I was with, what I was doing, where I was when I got the news. It's a real event. It's a fact. It's not a myth. It's not legend. Now, the resurrection, Paul tells us here, declares Jesus is God. God couldn't make it much more simple for us. If it happened, Jesus is God. And if it didn't happen, you don't have to concern yourself with all that Jesus is God nonsense because he clearly clearly wouldn't have been God in that case. But you know what? The resurrection can make even the most stubborn of doubters believe Jesus is God. Remember the apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas? He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He sounds pretty certain. Well, that was until eight days later when the resurrected Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my what? My Lord and my God. Thomas went to his death proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, proclaiming Jesus as his Lord and his God. It's no myth, no legend. It's resurrection. But you'll hear people say, well, sure, sure, others thought Jesus was God. They were mistaken. They thought he was God, but Jesus never called himself God. You hear that a lot. Well, I mean, have they read John chapter 10? I and the Father are one. Who said that? Gandhi? No, it was Jesus that said that. I and the Father are one. What was the response? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being man, make yourself God. Others didn't claim him as one with the Father, one with the Father. Others didn't make him God centuries later. Jesus himself claimed to be God. And he stated it so, so clearly that that the Jews sought to kill him for it. Take a look at another scripture where Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, Abraham lived several thousand years before Jesus. What's Jesus talking about? The Jews are perplexed. They say, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus isn't having a grammatical glitch here. He's claiming to be God. I am as in the great I am. I am who I am, as God said to Moses. That's what he's saying. 
Did they misunderstand him with this? What What did they do? Oh, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You seeing a pattern forming here? The people that Jesus was speaking to were so crystal clear what they heard him say that they sought to kill him for it. Sounds like they were pretty sure he was claiming to be God. How sure are you? Is Jesus God? Who do you say that he is? Guys, the appropriate response to that claim to his claim as the Son of God, is to worship him. To love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that how you've responded to the Son of God? Is that how you've responded to the Son? Or, as these Jews did and so many continue to do to this day, would you seek to destroy him instead? We cannot simply dismiss Jesus as a good moral teacher. As C.S. Lewis concluded, he didn't leave that option open to us. Either he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. Two of those options do deserve destruction or at least the utmost in pity. And one of those options deserves the utmost in praise. Make your choice. If he's God, you can't be. You won't see that line on any Super Bowl commercials. Scripture gives us full confidence to assert the full divinity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, but that shouldn't be all that we have to say about the Son. Let's also proclaim that Jesus is the Son of Man. We have established that Jesus is the Son of God, but there's a little more involved with who the Son is, and that's because He's the second person of a single triune being, entirely God. God had no beginning, have no end, and that includes the second person of that trinity. But he was never referred to as Jesus in the Old Testament, right? And he wasn't even referred to as God's son in the Old Testament because both that name and that title are introduced to us in the New Testament, to a man being born. That's why the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, it can be a little confusing, but that's why I like to frame things the way the biblical authors frame them, to give us the best clarity possible. When you think about, for instance, the way John opens his gospel, we're all familiar with the words, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's clearly stating the second person of the Trinity as the Word and showing that he is fully God. He's not a created being. And that Greek word for word, you probably know, is logos. It's an amazing concept. We do a whole sermon on the word logos. Logos is where we get the word logic in English. And part of what John is showing to us, communicating to us, is that Jesus is God and is who makes God make sense to us. And later, John says in the same chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in that event, the Word becoming flesh, the incarnation, well, it did have a beginning. 
And by that incarnation, he's no less the Word. He's entirely God. He's still eternal. Now, when he becomes flesh, he's entirely human. He was born, he suffered, he died, he rose again, lives forever. And whenever we speak of the Son being begotten of God, that's both his infant birth and his resurrection, actually, in Scripture, we're referring to the humanity of Jesus. And it's something that we call the hypostatic union. Basically, that Jesus has two aspects, two natures is what we call them. He is the Son of God, or maybe more appropriately, we'd say the Word, who's entirely God, no beginning, no end. The power of God rests on Him. And also, the Son of Man, Jesus' humanity, who was born and Subject to the frailties of being a human, he got hungry, he needed sleep, he experienced pain, he experienced death. Somehow, those two natures form one person. How exactly that works out, you work on it. I don't know, it's pretty tough. Maybe beyond human capacity to understand, but no contradictions. Those are two different natures. Whenever we <clears throat> say that he's the son of man, it's his favorite way of referring to himself. It alludes first to the fact that in addition to his divinity, he is also fully human. Like Paul says in our text today, that he was descended from David according to the flesh. Very important for the apostles to establish as fact Jesus wasn't some spirit or wise concept or angelic being, which was a major tenet of a heresy they fought in that day, the Gnostics. But Jesus was a flesh and bone man. And by the way, there's heretical teaching even today that follows the line that him being in the flesh is not important. In the New Age circles in particular, they'll say that he took on a Christ consciousness and said, watch out for that stuff. That is heresy. It's imperative that we proclaim Jesus was born to us in the flesh, the Son of Man, for a number of reasons. It makes him, first, entirely human. The perfect and provided sacrifice for sin, that sacrifice needed to be one of us. The same kind as us, our great substitute. Our, um, our dishwasher is broken. And, uh, you know, about a year ago, it started to have some problems. Six months ago, completely up and died. It is totally worthless to us. I mean, dead weight serves no purpose other than to look like a dishwasher and fill that space under the counter. Uh, so my wife's like, well, it's Black Friday. Come on, let's get a dishwasher already. And I'm, you know, dragging my feet a little bit. We tend to look at things from a different perspective. I'll look at it and say, you know, we haven't had a dishwasher for six months, so clearly we don't need a dishwasher. And she'll look at that exact same situation and say, we haven't had a dishwasher for six months. We clearly need a dishwasher. And she'll prevail, ultimately, because you know, like I do, all it takes is having a big group of people over for dinner and me doing the dishes for me to be like, 
this is the pits. Why don't we have a dishwasher? But when we order a dishwasher, if they deliver a refrigerator, well, that's not going to work. If they bring a TV or an oven, that's not going to work. What we need is a substitute. We need something exactly the same that works and can replace what's broken. Jesus had to become human, become exactly the same as us, to stand in our place, to replace what's broken. He took our old cross. He gave our new hearts. That's the gospel. Being completely human, the Son of Man is the one way that he can demonstrate perfect obedience to God and at the same time be perfectly relatable to us. It makes him our great high priest. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers, that's us, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, that's the payment for, appeasement of, for the sins of the people. The priest is the man that is the mediator, the one that stands between God and his people. That's what the high priest does. It's also what makes him what we might call the second man, who was the promised man to defeat Satan. You remember back in the garden when God curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That seed of the woman, that promised deliverer, is what we'd call the second Adam. The first man, Adam, Adam just means man in Hebrew. Well, he had no earthly father. Think about it. He was begotten by God. And the second man, the second Adam, Christ, he had no earthly father. He was begotten by God. Luke chapter 1 <clears throat> tells us that, do I have that here? Nope, that's a different one. Okay, forget it. I'll read it. <laughs> that Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, right? Set apart, the Son of God. Guys, we are all born into the first man. But we can choose to be born again into the second. The first was sinful, and disobedient. The second was righteous, sinless, perfectly obedient. Paul gets into that in Romans 5 where he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, he means the crucifixion, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedient, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, right? One man, second man. He, uh, he follows up on that in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians where he says, the first man, that's Adam, was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man, which is Christ, is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Oh, guys, it's a sweet, sweet gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of Man who knew our burdens, the Son of Man who knew no sin but became sin for our sake, the Son of Man who stood in our place, the Son of Man who's our great high priest, our one mediator with God, the Son of Man who is our second Adam, our second chance. That's the son I worship. I wonder, do you know him? Finally, being the son of man makes Jesus the fulfillment of Daniel's vision. This may be specifically what Jesus was referring to when he called himself the son of man. Let's take a look at that vision. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus claimed that he is the son of man, meaning he's fully human and fully recipient of the kingdom given by God in Daniel's vision. It's a huge claim, guys. He was proclaiming it every time he called himself the son of man, like openly stating to his audience, that kingdom, it's mine. But, logically speaking, couldn't anyone claim the same thing? Sure, sure they could. I mean, how can we know? How can we state plainly that we know that Jesus is the rightful recipient. We do that by claiming that he is the son of David. The Jews of Jesus' day were expecting with a high, high level of anticipation this delivering of the kingdom of God to the rightful recipient, the son of man in the vision. And they knew that the recipient needed to be, had to be, the son of David. That's because God made a promise with David, a covenant with David that someone from his line would rule forever. It's in 2 Samuel 7, if you want to reference that chapter. Then God spoke through his prophets to remind the people that the one who would rule from the, li from the line of David was coming. And there's dozens of prophecies we could look at that, that remind us of that. It's Christmas season, so why not a Christmas prophecy? What's your favorite Christmas verse? How about Isaiah 9-6? Right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We love that verse. It's a great prophecy, powerful prophecy. Well, that's not the whole prophecy. That's the first verse. What about the second verse, which is in verse 7? It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen and amen he has. How about another Christmas prophecy? Given right before the son of David would be born, proclaiming exactly who it would be to marry. It's in Luke chapter 1 where Gabriel says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. It's not saying David's his dad. Jesus has no earthly father. He comes from the line of David. Mary is directly descended from David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sound familiar? That's why it's so imperative for the biblical authors and for us to show that Jesus descended from the line of David. It shows that he's the fulfillment of that promise to David. It shows us that he has the legitimate claim to the throne. That's why Paul says in our text today, he was descended from David according to the flesh. It's what people desperate for healing would cry out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. And when he'd heal him, people would marvel at it and be like, could this be the son of David? And when, and when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in Matthew 21, it tells us the people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Luke's version in Luke 19 of that same event says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. To claim Jesus as the son of David makes him our king. It's claim that he has the right to rule. Are you proclaiming Jesus as the son of David? Are you proclaiming Jesus as your king? If not, my friends, are you somehow hoping that you'll find a better one? I mean, have you taken a look at the kings of history? Have you taken a look at the kings of Israel and Judah in Scripture? It's not pretty. Can I suggest to you that those rulers that we find so strange in the pages of strict Scripture... They're not the exception, folks. Sadly, they're the norm. They're the caricatures of the human heart. Your heart, my heart. Is, is that what you want ruling your life? Oh, dear friends, there's better. Jesus the righteous. Jesus the merciful. Jesus the powerful. Jesus the wise. Jesus the victorious. Jesus the king. That's my king the son of David, the son who is fully, completely king. I hope you'll join me in proclaiming him to be so. And finally, to also proclaim that he is the son of Abraham. What? Abraham, I'm Jason, I was tracking with you, son of God, son of Abraham. What are you talking about? Why is Abraham so important? As many of you know, Irina and I just got back from a trip overseas for a couple of weeks in a country that is very against any of its people turning to Christ. And can I tell you, there's nothing sweeter 
in one's life than hearing new believers praying over you to our God in multiple languages? Gathering and singing praises to our Lord together in their own melodies, with their own instruments, by their own words? It's family. It's life-changing. And it's all made possible because Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew's gospel opens with the words, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that so important? Both his genealogy and Luke's genealogy trace Jesus back through Abraham. Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham. It's crucial to trace Jesus back to Abraham because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises God made that through Abraham and his offspring, all nations would be blessed. That's in Genesis 12. That's in Genesis chapter 22. The Jews of Jesus' day were genetic descendants of Abraham. And they assumed that the promises that God made to Abraham were specifically for them. But the Apostle Paul, himself a Jew, he tells us, no, 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 there's more to the story, actually. We see it in places like Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He goes on later in the chapter to say, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Whoa. You start to see why so many of the Jews tried to kill Paul and run him out of every town that he was in. The offspring, the seed of the promise, the unification and peace of all peoples, it's Jesus. He's the son of Abraham that fulfills that promise. And if we're in him, then we share in the blessing of that promise. He is the head. Think of it this way. Who's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks? Pete Carroll. So if I was to say that I think that Pete Carroll is going to win the Super Bowl this year, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that Pete Carroll is going to go out every down, every play, playing every position against an opponent, right? I'm saying the Seahawks are going to win the Super Bowl. If I bless Pete Carroll with a Super Bowl trophy, it's the Seahawks that share in that blessing. That's what we're talking about. As the head, Jesus is the head of the church. It makes him the one who is the blessing to all nations. In Christ, in him, who is the son of Abraham, there's neither Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free, we're all one in Christ. Jesus, Paul tells us in the same chapter, in today's text, Paul tells us that it's the son through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
among all nations. That's Abraham. That's Jesus, the son of Abraham, the fulfillment of this prophecy, the fulfillment of the promise. That's Paul doing what we all should be doing, reaching and blessing all nations with this promise. We want everyone from everywhere in this church, in this family. So interesting then to hear what people so often say, that Christianity is just so exclusive. You hear that? It makes me crazy. Well, what, what does the text say? It says, among all nations, excluding you who are called. Oh, no, no, it says, including you who are called. Exclusive, give me a break. That's not the sun. There's nothing in this world, there's no one in this world more inclusive than the sun. If the church, if the world should say otherwise, then shame on them. And if the church should act otherwise, then shame on us. Our Lord is the son of Abraham, the very blessing to all peoples. That's what his word says. And to conclude, that's what the Bible says about the Son. It says that Jesus is the Son of God, making him fully God. It says Jesus is the Son of Man, making him fully human, the sinless and acceptable sacrifice to save us. It says Jesus is the Son of David, making him fully, rightfully King, our Lord. And Jesus is the Son of Abraham, making him fully the recipient of all the blessings God promised through him to all nations, for all nations. That's the son. That's the gospel of God, as Paul put it in the opening line of our text, that he was commissioned to proclaim and we proclaim today. The focus of the gospel of God, it's, it's a person. It's the son. Son of God, son of man, son of David, son of Abraham all the same person and all titles and requirements for the Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ. That's who the Bible says he is. That's who he himself said he is. When Peter proclaimed him as the Christ, Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. The Son who do you say that he is? I love Pastor Eugene's illustration a few months ago about his young son who has no concept of money and he'll pick up something that might seem worthless to us like a rock and you could offer him a million dollars and he'd say, well, but that's my rock. Oh, friends, do you see it? Hear not only the faith of a child's heart but also the words, that's my rock. The Son is the one who is promised, the one we've been waiting for, longing for, the one who is our true hope. What will he be to you now that he's been given? Who will you say that he is? I pray that you'll grab hold of the Son with the faith of the child and say, that's my rock. Grab hold of your rock with all that you have and make him known with all that you are. Father, God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the Son.
God, help us to make much of him in this world. Help us to proclaim him as your word has proclaimed him. God, our world is ready to know who Jesus is. We ask that you equip us for that very task. We thank you this morning in the name of the Son. Amen.